We've been starting this series with having different people recite Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. I still need more volunteers, so if that's something you're interested or willing to do, uh, if you wouldn't mind sending me a message or, or just letting me know at some point, that would be helpful. This summer we're walking through a series that we've entitled My Anchor Holds, taking this Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 passage that Heather just quoted for us, so that we who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who've trusted unto him for salvation, could be edified by the reality that in our struggles, in our trials, in our tribulations, and in our suffering, that our anchor in Jesus Christ will hold firm. It's Jesus who tells us in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, the scriptures testify to us that we will have struggles and trials and tribulations and that we will suffer. But by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, by his resurrection and by his ascension, we are anchored in and through him, through the one who overcame, the one who overcame the world, such that as we live our lives, as we face our challenges and our tribulations, our peace is not to be derived from the potential of having these tribulations resolved. No, our peace, according to God's word, is to be derived from knowing and having a relationship with Jesus. For it's in him that we have our peace. The Apostle Paul knew full well this reality of a peace that could transcend a storm. That's precisely what he encourages the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. This is what Paul writes. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." If we were to take the whole text of the scripture and come together with a theology, we would quickly find that we will suffer. We will even waste away. But Paul writes to us very powerfully, reminding us something more important than our struggles, more important than our suffering. Our afflictions are temporary. He also calls them transient, which is another way of saying that they'll be over quickly. That we need to have a perspective that considers the reality that eternity is eternal. And that whether in this life you're granted a hundred years or five. In light of eternity, it is really short. So Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, is to not get caught up in the things you can see. To not be defined by the things you can see, by the trials, by your uncomfortable moments, by your tensions, but rather to keep your eyes on the eternal, to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. 
to turn your eyes upon him. So how do we walk through struggles? How do we walk through trials? How do we face tribulations? How do we endure suffering? How do we endure a physical body that doesn't do what we want it to do or what we need it to do? How do we endure walking through a relational world filled with sinners who will yank and tug and sometimes be far more aggressive on us? And how do we endure the challenges of parenting little sinners who can only manage peace for eight seconds in a row? There's no reality to that one. How do we endure the challenges that are brought on by living within the covenant of marriage that calls us to love without conditions? How do we fight through all of the battles that life will bring to us, be it depression, health, or work issues? How do we handle it when the waves pick up, when the storm is heavy, when we can't see the sky or the sun? How do we walk through it? Well, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to know and to know that we know that we are anchored in and through Jesus Christ. That is the entire hope of our summer series, that we would gain a perspective to see Jesus Christ in the midst of absolutely every storm, whether it is a single cloud or a class five hurricane, that Christ is in the midst of all of them. And if this storm is where you find yourself this morning, I want to encourage and exhort you in Jesus Christ. And if you're not in a storm, then I want to at least warn you because the forecast Jesus gives us tells us the storms are coming. So we all need to be prepared in this to know and how to walk with a truth like Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, to see that we are anchored in Christ, that we have a secure hope in Christ, that we're anchored in him and in his word. And we're using the Psalms to do it. This morning we'll be opening our Bibles to Psalm 4 and considering what it looks like to be anchored in the midst of discouragement and more specifically, what it looks like to be anchored in the midst of discouragers. So let's turn our eyes to God's word this morning. Psalm 4 says, to the choir master with string instruments, a psalm of David. This is a psalm of David. The header confirms that for us. But it also reminds us that the psalms were intended to be sung, which I will not be doing for you this morning. And that this one would be played with a stringed instrument. Not a bad argument for a guitar in a church, but we're not going to have that conversation either. That's what we know. That's the context that's given to this psalm. There are some that would pair it with Psalm 3, suggesting that this is the back half, this is the recovery from the the happenings of Psalm 3, which we walked through last week. There's not a lot of overwhelming evidence to support that. It doesn't matter, so we'll not take it in that consideration. But in verse 1, David writes this. He says, "'Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness.'" You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
What we find in Psalm 4 is David, a man well-seasoned by storms, finds himself in another one. And the beautiful thing about this psalm, and it might even be unique in our series this summer, is that it is abundantly clear from the beginning of this psalm that he is anchored, that he's tethered to his heavenly Father in a way that holds him firm and secure, even in the midst of a storm. For the details of this psalm are more about his anchoring than they are about the storm. Because you know in this one, he's not despairing, he's not desperate, he is not hopeless. How do we know that? We consider his words. David says, answer me when I call. Be gracious and hear my prayer. If we listen to the words he's using, we can really understand David can see the Lord. He knows God is with them in the midst of this. He knows God is fully present. He's calling out to him, not as one who's distant, not as one who can't see him, but as one who will respond. So we should take some courage in this. This becomes a a pattern for us, at least to appreciate in David, that he has learned some things from the storms that he's walked through. In fact, David has learned what Paul wrote in Romans 5. This is what Paul writes to the Romans. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. David understood that suffering produced endurance. Now that's a biblical truth the world won't give you. You'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who's going to say, hey, you're going through something hard? Man, it's going to prepare you for the next hard thing. Isn't it awesome? And yet you find that to be a staunch biblical truth. That as we walk through, as we endure hardship, it builds up within us an endurance. What does that mean? It means we start to learn that he's in the midst of the storm with us. We start to learn that he's trustworthy in the midst of these storms. We start to understand that he's utterly in control even when we can't fathom what that looks like. We grow in endurance and that endurance builds within us character, the character that none of us want more of, but the character that Jesus Christ desires to stew up within us and that produces hope. Such that for David, even during a dark season, David well understood that his hope was rooted. Why? Because he could look back at these other storms he'd walked through, these other storms that he'd endured, and see that God had been entirely trustworthy. So even if the clouds were heavy, even if the day was dark, he knew where to find God. He knew where he would be. And he knew he could reach out to him, and he knew he would answer. And this all worked together for David so that he knew in the midst of this storm that he'd been here before, that he'd walked this way through, and he knew the way out. 
So he calls upon the name of the Lord. Oh, God of my righteousness. Such a great title. For if you're calling to the God of your righteousness, you're accepting that your righteousness is attributed by him alone. You're not going to earn your way out of this one. It's because of the work of the Father. And so David recognizes all of the storms that God has already brought him through, the righteousness that has been granted to him, and he asks God to listen to his prayer. Now this psalm, this prayer, is a little bit funny if you think about it. Because what happens in these next several verses is that David prays in such a way, knowing other people will hear him, and knowing that other people will be even convicted by his words. It's an interesting reality you find in the scriptures. For David says here in verse 2, having been anchored in the midst of the storm, David says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. David, while seeking after God, tells of a group of people. Israel's to sing this regularly, by the way. David tells of a group of people. He calls them out in his prayer. Now, it's possible this is Absalom and the army, but nonetheless, these people are bringing him and his reputation to shame. You start to get a sense of the clouds. You got to start to get a sense of what this storm actually looks like. That there's a group of people who are ruining his reputation. They're lying about him. Now, we don't know the whole situation. We don't know the lies that were spoken. But I have a sense we can get a sense of it. I have a sense that some of us have walked through things like this. In one of my very first ministry jobs, I was the area director of a parachurch ministry. My job was sharing the gospel with high school students. Everything was going well for me until one day when I got a phone call from my boss's boss. And he was really angry. As it turns out, my boss's boss had received a letter from someone serving on my committee detailing 22 complaints about me, including several that would have actually been quite illegal. I had never seen the letter. I didn't know what he was talking about. But about 45 minutes later, someone showed up in my office to give me a copy of the letter, letting me know that it had been mailed to five other people. Let me just tell you, it was bad. It was real bad. And for some unknown reason, I still have a copy of it at my desk. So if you ever want to be encouraged, I'll let you read it. Now, it's worth telling you lest you begin to question my integrity. Two days later, my boss, not my boss's boss, my boss showed up in my office and began an investigation proving that 21 of his 22 complaints were completely false and stood on nothing, which meant he lied and fabricated about a lot of it. The 22nd one was that I stunk at details, and I still do. But you can imagine the storm this caused in my life to be accused by a good friend, to have all these accusations leveled upon me, 
that were baseless. He would later said he did it because he wanted to encourage me to grow in some areas. I'd like you to grow in some areas, but I'm never going to write you the letter. I don't know why the world operates the way that it does. I don't know why even at times believers will turn their backs on us and fire sharp or critical words that destroy us. I don't know why. What I do know is in the midst of this storm that David walks through, what I do know is in the middle of the storm that I walked through, and I do know in the midst of a storm like this that you have walked through, that Jesus Christ is firm. David was being attacked by those who desired to ruin his reputation. I got challenged by someone who wanted me to grow. This can happen to any of us. The question is, will we be anchored? Because what you see in David is that he is completely anchored to Jesus Christ in this moment. He's anchored to the Father. Even as he responds to his accusers. Verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. What David is saying even to those who are accusing him is that he belongs to the Lord. That's his counter argument. I don't belong to you. Your words don't matter to me. I belong to the Lord. It's His words that matter. What He has declared to be true, that's what I anchor myself to. And David's not claiming to be godly. He's claiming to be set apart. Set apart by God and for God. He's not giving himself a great distinction other than I belong to the Lord, that God has chosen me. That's what the word set apart, that's the root of it. That God's picked me. That I belong to him. Because he understood that he belonged to the Lord and that God was his father, he understood that God would listen to him, that God would hear him despite the storm. And friends, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, this truth, this anchor is just as true for you as it was for David. Listen to what Paul writes the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul saying, man, how great is our God who has given us Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to tell you what all those blessings are. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul's telling him that you were chosen by God, that God has picked you, that he calls you, that he's set you apart. That's what he's encouraging them with. That's one of the great spiritual blessings we find in this text. It's the very same thing that David is holding on to. That in Christ you are chosen by God the Father. 
And he sets you apart. And he adopts you. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that God the Father not only picks you, he adopts you. And says, this is my son. This is my daughter. That's how thoroughly he wants you to know that you belong to him, that he actually legally adopts you. That's a spiritual blessing to which God is to be glorified for. And thirdly, in addition to being chosen and adopted, you're also redeemed. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's Jesus Christ's blood. It's Christ going to the cross on our behalf. It's his blood that is spilt, that buys us, that redeems us. It is in that moment when our guilt and our sin at the cross is imputed into Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imputed into you. It is in that moment that you're declared innocent before the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ that you are redeemed. You're a new creation. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now listen to this one. This is my favorite verse. Which he lavished upon us. He's piling grace upon you. Every time I read this verse, I have one picture in mind. My wife makes the absolute greatest German chocolate cake that's ever to be had. And that woman loves me enough to lavish frosting all over that cake. Just piles it on. And that's what I think about God's grace. Now, not only does he redeem us, not only does he forgive us, not only does he give us grace, he just piles grace on. It's thick. It's the brown sugar, coconutty, buttery thick. I just got hungry. (laughs) He lavished on us, listen to this, in all wisdom and insight, it made total sense to God to do it. God, who has all knowledge, made total wisdom for God to make this decision, to choose you, to adopt you, to redeem you. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to get it. In fact, you won't. Years ago in our college ministry, we brought literally the world's most renowned scholar and the historic Jesus into our college ministry. We had about a hundred and some college students there to ask him questions. And more than half the questions boiled down to, why would God pick me? You don't have to figure it out. It's not for you to know. In all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to know all things in him, things in heaven and things are earth. God's going to bring it all together. He's got it all under control. And he gives you these spiritual blessings that you're chosen, that you're adopted, that you're redeemed, that you are his. That you've been set apart and that you belong to him. That is the very truth 
that David finds himself anchored to in this psalm. Such that when the waves picked up and the wind blows and a Category 3 hurricane looked like it was going Category 4, David says, it doesn't matter. I belong to the Father. I'm His. And He's a good Daddy. And I know that He'll hear me. Jesus says this in Matthew 7 about His Father. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Gives you an illustration. One you're supposed to think about. If your kid comes up to you and says, Dad, can I have a sandwich? Or you go, here, son, have some gravel. The old Saturday Night Live skit, bag of broken glass. What? Who, if your son says, give me a fish says, here's a snake. I'll kill you instead. Listen to the illustration play out. Listen closely. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, this is Father's Day. And I want to remind you that you have an incredible Father in heaven. That whether your dad was awesome or whether he was the third worst human that ever lived, it's irrelevant compared to a heavenly Father who is incredible, who is the Creator, who's loved you in such amazing sacrificial ways that he sent his son to die on a cross to redeem you. That's how much he loves you. How much more will your father who is in heaven good good things to those who ask him? God loves us. He's chosen us. You've been set apart. According to Paul, you're chosen, adopted, and redeemed. You belong to him. This is David's great anchor in the passage. So he isn't tossed back and forth by the waves. He isn't moved by their words. Now, I want to assure you, in the moment, it probably stung. It happens to all of us that way. It takes a minute for us to steady ourselves, for us to recognize that we're anchored. But David was anchored in this storm. So much so, so much did he understand that he belonged to his father. So much did he understand that God's words mattered more than the words of men. So much so that in the midst of this, he calls his opponents to repentance. That Not judgment. We'll walk through some psalms where they cry judgment on some folks. But he calls them to repentance. Even giving them the advice we find in Ephesians 4.26. David says to them, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Salah. David challenges them to consider their hearts. Process where you're at. 
It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be hurt. He seems to have some understanding that they're lashing back for something. But don't allow yourselves to be given over to sin. He calls them to repentance. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David calls out to them from a place of being owned by God and says, brothers, man, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to get right. Verse 6, there are many who will say, probably pointing at the same group of guys, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There are many who are going to look at you and your situations and ask, man, shouldn't it be better? I I can't help but think of Job's friends in this passage who kept walking up next to him, reading through parts of the book of Job this week in preparation for the text. It's fascinating to see at the end of Job 2, I think, that his buddies actually prayed and came towards him with an understanding of, hey, man, we want to help this guy. We want to love, we want to encourage this guy. And it seemed like their attitude was right, but boy, their tongues were awful. And you see that here. There'll be many who will point out, shouldn't we have something better? Verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they that have their grain and their wine abound. What David begins to testify to is that the spiritual provisions of God exceed the earthly provisions of everybody. That David finds a contentment, knowing God, a peace in his heart that would be exceeded by every pile of bread and wine that he could fathom. He's contrasting his life with these same guys who would complain and say, shouldn't it be better for you? Man, what I have in the Lord, even in the midst of this trial, is so good. It's way better than where you are. And in verse 8, he finishes... In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again, like in Psalm 3, David so thoroughly trusts in God that he goes to sleep. He enters into the most vulnerable position because of his trust in God and says, you know what? God, you're so thoroughly in control. I'm going to hug my pillow and trust you. Friends, I don't know what storm is going on in your life. But I can trust that if you're not there, one is coming. And the anchor that we need to hold on to from Psalm 4 is the realization that God the Father loves you. And that in his love for you, that he chose you. You belong to him. And that he is a good father will not give you what you deserve, but instead lavishes grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And because he's a good father, even in your desperation, he will always hear you. For because of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, he was a forerunner for us into heaven so that we'd be connected, we'd be tethered to the Father in any and every storm. Friends, be encouraged. Let me pray.
Father, as we walk through these psalms looking practically at, at how to handle life when the waves pick up, how to walk through adversity, how to handle trials, whether they're self-inflicted like we saw last week or whether they're caused by people who just seem to want to discourage us like we see this week's, whether it's brought on by physical ailments or relational problems or so many other issues, Father, that exist in the world. Can we just know that in Jesus Christ, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. That if we've believed in him, that Christ has gone before us to tether us to our heavenly Father so that in every storm, we can have a firm foundation knowing who we are, knowing that we belong to the Father, and that we're his. Carry us, Father. In your name we pray.